Section 17 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9, Part 1. Half a mile from the Isbel Ranch, the cavalcade passed the log cabin of Everts, father of the boy who attended sheep, with Bernardino. It suited Gaston Isbel to halt here. No need to call. Everts and his son appeared so quickly as to convince observers that they had been watching. "'Howdy, Jake,' said Isbel. "'I'm wanting a word with you alone.' "'Sure, boss. Get down and come in,' replied Everts. Isabel led him aside, and said something forcible that John divined from the very gesture which accompanied it. His father was telling Everts that he was not to join the Isabel-Jorth War. Everts had worked for the Isbels a long time, and his faithfulness, along with something stronger and darker, showed in his rugged face as he stubbornly opposed Isbel. The old man raised his voice. No, I tell you, and that settles it. They returned to the horses, and before mounting, Isbel, as if he remembered something, directed a somber gaze on young Everts. Son, did you bury Bernardino? Dad and me went over yesterday, replied the lad. I sure was glad the coyotes hadn't been round. How about the sheep? I left them there. I was going to stay, but being all alone, I got scared. The sheep was doing fine. Good water and some grass. And this ain't the time for varmints to hang around. Jake, keep your eye on that flock, returned Isabel. And if I shouldn't happen to come back, you can call the sheep yours. I'd like your boy to ride up to the village, not with us, so anybody would see him, but afterwards. We'll be at Abel Meeker's. Again John was confronted with an uneasy premonition as to some idea or plan his father had not shared with his followers. When the cavalcade started on again, John rode to his father's side and asked him why he had wanted the Everts boy to come to Grass Valley. And the old man replied that, as the boy could run to and fro in the village without danger, he might be useful in reporting what was going on at Greaves's store, where undoubtedly the Jorth gang would hold forth. This appeared reasonable enough, therefore Jean smothered the objection he had meant to make. The valley road was deserted. When, a mile further on, the riders passed a group of cabins just on the outskirts of the village, Jean's quick eye caught sight of curious and evidently frightened people trying to see while they avoided being seen. No doubt the whole settlement was in a state of suspense and terror. Not unlikely this dark, closely grouped band of horsemen appeared to them as Jorth's gang had looked to Jean. It was an orderly, trotting march that manifested neither hurry nor excitement. But any western eye could have caught the singular aspect of such a group, as if the intent of the riders was a visible thing. Soon they reached the outskirts of the village. Here their approach had been watched for, or had been already reported. Jean saw men, women, children, peeping from behind cabins and from half-open doors. Farther on, Jean espied the dark figures of men, slipping out the back way through orchards and gardens and running north, toward the center of the village. Could these be friends of the Jorth crowd? 
on the way with warnings of the approach of the Isbels. Jean felt convinced of it. He was learning that his father had not been absolutely correct in his estimation of the way Jorth and his followers were regarded by their neighbors. Not improbably, there were really many villagers who, being more interested in sheep-raising than in cattle, had an honest leaning toward the Jorths. Some, too, no doubt, had leanings that were dishonest indeed, if not in sincerity. Gaston Isbel led his clan straight down the middle of the wide road of Grass Valley, until he reached the point opposite Abel Meeker's cabin. Jean espied the same curiosity from behind Meeker's door and windows as had been shown all along the road. But presently, at Isbel's call, the door opened and a short, swarthy man appeared. He carried a rifle. "'Howdy, Gas,' he said. "'What's the good word?' "'Well, Abel, it's not good, but bad, and it sure has started,' replied Isbel. "'I'm asking you to let me have your cabin.' "'You're welcome.' I'll send the folks round to Jim's, returned Meeker, and if you want me, I'm with you, Isbel. Thanks, Abel, but I'm not leading any more kin and friends into this here deal. Well, just as you say, but I'd like damn bad to join with you. My brother Ted was shot last night. Ted, is he dead? ejaculated Isbel blankly. We can't find out, replied Meeker. Jim says that Jeff Campbell said that Ted went into Greaves' place last night. Greaves was always friendly to Ted, but Greaves wasn't there. No, he sure wasn't, interrupted Isbel with a dark smile, and he never will be there again. Meeker nodded with slow comprehension, and a shade crossed his face. Well, Campbell claimed he heard from someone who was there. Anyway, the Jorths were drinking hard, and they raised a row with Ted, same old sheep talk, and somebody shot him. Campbell said Ted was thrown out back, and he was sure he wasn't killed. Ah, oh, well, I'm sorry, Abel. Your family had to lose in this. Maybe Ted's not bad hurt. I sure hope so. And you and Jim keep out of the fight, anyway. All right, Isbel, but I reckon I'll give you a hunch. If this here fight lasts long, the whole damn basin will be in it, on one side or the other. Abel, you're talking sense, broke in Blaisdell, and that's why we're up here for quick action. I heard you got dags, whispered Meeker, as he peered all around. Well, you heard correct, drawled Blaisdell. Meeker muttered strong words into his beard. Say, was dags in that Jorth outfit? He was, but he walked right into Jean's forty-four and I reckon his carcass would show some more. "'And where's Guy Isbel?' demanded Meeker. "'Dead and buried, Abel,' replied Gaston Isbel. "'And now I'd be obliged if you would hurry your folks away and let us have your cabin and corral. Have you got any hay for the horses?' "'Sure, the barn's half full,' replied Meeker, as he turned away. "'Come on in.' "'No, we'll wait till you've gone.' When Meeker had gone, Isbel and his men sat their horses and looked about them and spoke low. Their advent had been expected, and the little town awoke to the imminence of the impending battle. Inside Meeker's house there was the sound of indistinct voices of women 
and the bustle incident to a hurried vacating. Across the wide road, people were peering out on all sides, some hiding, others walking to and fro from fence to fence, whispering in little groups. Down the wide road, at the point where it turned, stood Greaves's fort-like stone house, low, flat, isolated, with its dark, eye-like windows, it presented a forbidding and sinister aspect. Jean distinctly saw the forms of men, some dark, others in shirt-sleeves, come to the wide door and look down the road. Well, I reckon only about five hundred good horse-steps are separating us from that outfit, drawled Blaisdell. No one replied to his jocularity. Gaston Isbel's eyes narrowed to a slit in his furrowed face, and he kept them fastened upon Greaves' store. Blue, likewise, had a somber cast of countenance, not, perhaps, any darker nor grimmer than those of his comrades, but more representative of intense preoccupation of mind. The look of him thrilled John, who could sense its deadliness, yet could not grasp any more. Altogether, the manner of the villagers and the watchful pacing to and fro of the Jorth followers and the silent boating front of Isbel and his men summed up for Jean the menace of the moment that must very soon change to a terrible reality. At a call from Meeker, who stood at the back of the cabin, Gaston Isbel rode into the yard, followed by the others of his party. "'Somebody look after the horses,' ordered Isbel, as he dismounted and took his rifle and pack. "'Better leave the saddles on, leastways, till we see what's coming off.' Jean and Bill Isbel led the horses back to the corral. While watering and feeding them, Jean somehow received the impression that Bill was trying to speak, to confide in him, to unburden himself of some load. This peculiarity of Bill's had become marked when he was perfectly sober. Yet he had never spoken or even begun anything unusual. Upon the present occasion, however, Jean believed that his brother might have gotten rid of his emotion, or whatever it was, had they not been interrupted by Colmer. Boys, the old man's orders are for us to sneak round on the three sides of Greaves' store, keeping out of gunshot till we find good cover, and then crawl closer to pick off any of Jorth's gang who shows himself. Bill Isabel strolled off without a reply to Colmer. Well, I don't think so much of that, said Jean ponderingly. Jorth has lots of friends here. Somebody might pick us off. I kicked, but the old man shut me up. He's not to be bucked again now. Struck me as powerful queer, but no wonder. Maybe he knows best. Did he say anything about what he and the rest of them are going to do? Nope. Blue taxed him with that, and he got the same as me. I reckon we'd better try it out, for a while anyway. Looks like he wants us to keep out of the fight, replied Jean thoughtfully. Maybe, though, Dad's no fool. Colmer, you wait here till I get out of sight. I'll go round and come up as close as advisable behind Greaves's store. You take the right side and keep hid. With that, Jean strode off, going around the barn, straight out of the orchard lane 
to the open flat, and then climbing a fence to the north of the village. Presently he reached a line of sheds and corrals to which he held until he arrived at the road. This point was about a quarter of a mile from Greaves's store and around the bend. Jean sighted no one. The road, the fields, the yards, the backs of the cabins all looked deserted. A blight had settled down upon the peaceful activities of Grass Valley. Crossing the road, Jean began to circle until he came close to several cabins around which he made a wide detour. This took him to the edge of the slope where brush and thickets afforded him a safe passage to a line directly back of Greaves's store. Then he turned toward it. Soon he was again approaching a cabin of that side, and some of its inmates descried him. Their action attested to their alarm. Jean half expected a shot from this quarter. Such were his growing doubts, but he was mistaken. A man, unknown to Jean, closely watched his guarded movements and then waved a hand as if to signify to Jean that he had nothing to fear. After this act, he disappeared. Jean believed that he had been recognized by someone not antagonistic to the Isbels. Therefore, he passed the cabin and coming to a thick scrub oak tree that offered shelter, he hid there to watch. From this spot, he could see the back of Greaves's store at a distance probably too far for a rifle bullet to reach. Before him, as far as the store, on each side extended the village common. In front of the store ran the road. Jean's position was such that he could not command sight of this road down toward Meeker's house, a fact that disturbed him. Not satisfied with this stand, he studied his surroundings in the hope of a spine a better, and he discovered what he thought would be a more favorable position, although he could not see much further down the road. Jean went back around the cabin, and coming out into the open to the right, he got the corner of Greaves's barn between him and the window of the store. Then he boldly hurried into the open, and soon reached an old wagon, from behind which he proposed to watch. He could not see either window or door of the store, but if any of the Jorth contingent came out the back way, they would be within reach of his rifle. Jean took the risk of being shot at from either side. So sharp and roving was his sight that he soon espied Colmer slipping along behind the trees some hundred yards to the left. All his efforts to catch a glimpse of Bill, however, were fruitless and this appeared strange to Jean, for there were several good places on the right from which Bill could have commanded the front of Greaves's store and the whole west side. Colmer disappeared among some shrubbery, and Jean seemed left alone to watch a deserted, silent village. Watching and listening, he felt that the time dragged, yet the shadows cast by the sun showed him that, no matter how tense he felt, and how the moments seemed hours, they were really flying. Suddenly, Jean's ears rang with the vibrant shock of a rifle report. He jerked up, strung and thrilling. It came from in front of the store. It was followed by revolver shots, heavy booming. Three, he counted, 
and the rest were too close together to enumerate. A single hoarse yell pealed out, somehow trenchant and triumphant. Other yells, not so wild and strange, muffled the first one. Then silence clamped down on the store and the open square. Jean was deadly certain that some of the Jorth clan would show themselves. He strained to still the trembling, though sudden shots and that significant yell had caused him. No man appeared. No more sounds caught Jean's ears. The suspense, then, grew unbearable. It was not that he could not wait for an enemy to appear, but that he could not wait to learn what had happened. Every moment he stayed there with his hands like steel on his rifle, with eyes of a falcon, but added to the dreadful dark certainty of disaster. A rifle shot swiftly, followed by revolver shots. What could they mean? Revolver shots of different caliber, surely fired by different men. What could they mean? It was not these shots that accounted for Jean's dread, but the yell which had followed. All his intelligence and all his nerve were not sufficient to fight down the feeling of calamity. And at last, yielding to it, he left his post and ran like a deer across the open, through the cabin yard and around the edge of the slope to the road. Here his caution brought him to a halt. Not a living thing crossed his vision. Breaking into a run, he soon reached the back of Meeker's place and entered the hurry forward to the cabin. Calmer was there in the yard, breathing hard, his face working, and in front of him crouched several of the men with rifles ready. The road to Jean's flashing glance was apparently deserted. Blue sat on the doorstep, lighting a cigarette. Then on the moment, Blaisdell strode to the door of the cabin. Jean had never seen him look like that. Jean, look down the road, he said brokenly, and with big hands shaking, he pointed down toward Greaves's store. Like lightning, Jean's glance shot down, 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 until it stopped to fix upon the prostrate form of a man lying in the middle of the road, a man of lengthy build, shirt-sleeved arms flung wide, white head in the dust, dead. Jean's recognition was as swift as his sight, his father. They had killed him, the Jorths. It was done. His father's premonition of death had not been false. And then, after these flashing thoughts, came a sense of blankness, momentarily almost oblivion, that gave place to a rending of the heart. The pain Jean had known only at the death of his mother. It passed this agonizing pang, and its icy pressure yielded to a rushing gust of blood, fiery as hell. "'Who did it?' whispered Jean. "'Jorth,' replied Blaisdell huskily. "'Son, we couldn't hold your dad back. We couldn't. He was like a lion, and he throwed his life away. Oh, if it hadn't been for that, it'd not be so awful. Sure, we come here to shoot and be shot, but not like that. By God, it was murder, murder. Jean's mute lips framed the query easily read. Tell him, Blue, I can't, continued Blaisdell, and he tramped back into the cabin. Set down, Jean, and take things easy, said Blue calmly. You know we all reckoned we'd get plugged one way or another in this deal, 
and sure it doesn't matter much how a fella gets it. All that ought to bother us is to make sure the other outfit bites the dust, same as your dad had to. Under this man's tranquil presence, all the more quieting because it seemed so deadly sure and cool, Jean felt the uplift of his dark spirit, the acceptance of fatality, the mounting control of faculties that must wait. The little gunman seemed to have about his inert presence something that suggested a rattlesnake's inherent knowledge of its destructiveness. Jean sat down and wiped his clammy face. Jean, your dad reckoned to square accounts with Jorth and save us all, began Blue, puffing out a cloud of smoke. But he reckoned too late. Maybe years ago, or even not long ago, if he had called Jorth out man to man, there'd never been any Jorth-Isbel war. Gaston Isbel's conscience woke too late. That's how I figure it. Hurry, tell me how it happened, panted Jean. Well, a little while after you left, I seen your dad writing on a leaf he tore out of a book. Meeker's Bible, as you can see. I thought that was funny. And Blaisdell gave me a hunch. Pretty soon along comes young Everts. The old man calls him out of our hearing and talks to him. Then I see him give the boy something, which I afterward figured was what he wrote on the leaf out of the Bible. Me and Blaisdell both tried to get out of him what that meant, but not a word. I kept watching, and after a while, I seen young Everts slip out the back way. Maybe half an hour, I seen a bare-legged kid cross the road and go into Greaves's store. Then sure I tumbled to your dad. He sent a note to Jorth to come out and meet him face to face, man to man. Sure it was like reading what your dad had wrote. But I didn't say nothing to Blaisdell. I just watched. Blue drawed these last words, as if he enjoyed remembrance of his keen reasoning. A smile wreathed his thin lips. He drew twice on the cigarette and emitted another cloud of smoke. Quite suddenly then he changed. He made a rapid gesture, the whip of a hand, significant and passionate, and swift words followed. Colonel Lee Jorth stalked out of the store, out into the road, maybe a hundred steps. Then he halted. He wore his long black coat and his wide black hat, and he stood like a stone. What the hell, burst out Blaisdell, coming out of his trance. The rest of us just looked. I'd forgot your dad for a minute, so had all of us, but we remembered soon enough when we seen him stalk out. Everybody had a hunch then. I called him. Blaisdell begged him to come back. All the fellows had a say. No use. Then I sure cussed him and told him it was plain as day that Jorth didn't hit me like an honest man. I can sense such things. I knew Jorth had a trick up his sleeve. I've not been a gunfighter for nothing. Your dad had no rifle. He packed his gun at his hip. He just stalked down that road like a giant, going faster and faster, holding his head high. It sure was fine to see him, but I was sick. I heard Blaisdell groan and Frederick Starr cussed something fierce. When your dad halted, I reckon about fifty steps from Jorth, then we all went numb. I heard your dad's voice, then Jorth's. They cut like knives. You could sure hear the hate they had for each other. 
Blue had become a little husky. His speech had grown gradually to denote his feeling. Underneath his serenity, there was a different order of man. I reckon both your dad and Jorth went for their guns at the same time, an even break. But just as they drew, someone shot a rifle from the store. Must have been a forty-five seventy, a big gun. The bullet must have hit your dad low down, about the middle. He acted that way, sinking to his knees, and he was wild in shooting, so wild that he must have missed. Then he wobbled, and Jorth run in a dozen steps, shooting fast, till your dad fell over. Jorth run closer and bent over him. Then he straightened up with an Apache yell, if I ever heard one. And then Jorth back slow, looking all the time back to the store, and then went in. Blue's voice ceased. Jean seemed suddenly released from an impelling magnet that now dropped him to some numb, dizzy depth. Blue's lean face grew hazy. Then Jean bowed his head in his hands and sat there, while a slight tremor shook all his muscles at once. He grew deathly cold and deathly sick. This paroxysm slowly wore away, and Jean grew conscious of a dull amaze at the apparent deadness of his spirit. Blaisdell placed a huge, kindly hand on his shoulder. "'Brace up, son,' he said with a voice now clear and resonant. Sure, it's what your dad expected, and what we must all look for. If you was going to kill Jorth before, think how. Sure, you're going to kill him now. Blaisdell's talking, put in Blue, and his voice had a cold ring. Lee Jorth will never see the sun rise again. These calls to the primitive in John, to the Indian, were not in vain. But even so, when the dark tide rose in him, there was still a haunting consciousness of the cruelty of the singular doom imposed upon him. Strangely, Ellen Jorth's face floated back in the depths of his vision, pale, fading, like the face of a spirit floating by. Blue said Blaisdell, let's get Isabel's body soon as we dare and bury it. Reckon we can right after dark. Sure, replied Blue. But you fellows figure that out. I'm thinking hard. I've got something on my mind. Jean grew fascinated by the looks and speech and action of the little gunman. Blue indeed had something on his mind, and it boded ill to the men in that dark square stone house down the road. He paced to and fro in the yard, back and forth on the path to the gate, and then he entered the cabin to stalk up and down faster and faster, until all at once he halted, as if struck, to upfling his right arm in a singular fierce gesture. "'Jean, call the men in,' he said tersely. They all filed in, sinister and silent, with eager faces turned to the little Texan. His dominance showed markedly. End of chapter 9, part 1